I know I had mentioned this a few weeks ago, uh, but last month we saw the Holy Spirit move on the campus of Asbury University. Some people called it a revival, others called it an awakening, but it was something of the Spirit of God moving through this, this university campus. It began on February 8th. There were students who uh, took turns leading worship, giving words of exhortation. There was prayer, there was healing, and this lasted for a, as a continuous service for over two weeks, I believe 16 days before the university actually shut it down. Through social media, it received national coverage. People from across the country flocked to see what God was doing in this, this small town in Kentucky. Student body president Allison Perfeter was one of the handful of students who remained after the scheduled chapel service of which this kind of all broke through afterwards. She was interviewed by Tucker Carlson uh, about a week into this and confirmed what started this move. She said one of her fellow students stuck around after their scheduled chapel service and confessed some of the sins that he was dealing with. Kind of on the heels of that, she said, quote, the atmosphere changed. They started, who were sticking around, started singing some worship to the Lord. The president of the university, Kevin Brown, sent out an email that said, there's worship happening in Hughes, which is their chapel. You're welcome to join. And students flocked back in, and we all saw the result. Now, the reason I bring this example up again, because this is probably fresh on our minds, just happened a month ago, Uh, But there is a strong link of revival with the act of confession. As you trace the history of revival across our nation, this process of conviction and acknowledgement and turning from ways that we have violated God's standards is an essential ingredient. Just like we saw in Asbury, the discipline of confession has often been the catalyst in these movements of God. So this morning, we are going to look at the first of the corporate disciplines laid out in Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, the the practice of confession. Now, this practice, in interactions that I've had with with folks, it's often viewed in a negative light. And so I want to start our time by reorienting our understanding of it. Then we'll take some time and look as, as to why it is considered a corporate discipline as opposed to something I can just do inwardly and privately. And then I'll give a few basic steps for confession, some, some ingredients necessary for good confession, and then close with just a couple of examples of application, what this might look like for us to put this into practice in our lives. I think we often misunderstand confession. Right? If you were raised Catholic, you might Think about sitting in a a stuffy chamber, having to share your guilt to a priest, and then being given homework to make up for your wrongdoing. If you've been in Protestant circles, confession might be largely ignored, perhaps only coming up in conversations if we feel like we did something really bad. In general, the attitude or feeling towards confession I don't think is usually a real positive one. I think of the famous sermon by Puritan uh, preacher Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We often have this picture of God as furious with us over our sins, that we have to come to him like a dog with its tail between its legs. 
And we approach God as we confess and he's looking grim, crossing his arms, maybe tapping his foot impatiently. The whole thing is cast in a very intimidating light. Now, I, I don't know if that's relatable to you. That's, that's me speaking from some of my experience. But if it is, if that's how you view God in confession, then boy, do I have some good news for you this morning. Because God is not a punitive God. He's not waiting for us to screw up so that he can bring down that hammer of judgment. God's desire, what we see in the scriptures, is he has a desire to give and forgive. I remember the exact moment that this started to switch. The switch started to turn for me. I was reading through a a Bible in a year program, and very early on, I was reading Romans chapter 2. And Romans 2, 4 says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I remember doing a double take in the text on the second half of that verse. Like, did I read that correctly? God's kindness is meant to lead me to repentance. It wasn't God's wrath or his anger or his judgment, but his kindness was meant to bring us back to him. That word word that is translated as kindness is the same root word that Jesus uses when he says that his yoke, right, his teaching is easy and light. Now, this revolutionized my understanding of repentance and the confession that goes with it. We don't go to God in confession having to cower before him. We don't have to carry ourselves in a way that's just waiting for the other shoe to drop in his disappointment over our failure to live up yet again to his standards. Because of his love, God is eager to forgive us. Just this past week, I was reading one of my devotionals, and Sky Jatani wrote this. He said, quote, There is a huge difference between willingness and eagerness. Duty makes us willing. Love makes us eager. Unfortunately, many of us have been formed to think of God's forgiveness as a duty, something he is willing or even obligated to do, but only reluctantly. See, God's love makes him eager to forgive. Put another way, Richard Foster said it like this. He said, we do not have to make God willing to forgive. In fact, it is God who is working, it is God who is working to make us willing to seek his forgiveness. I hope we can see how this is good news for us in confession. Now, I, I'm not saying that confession should not have a degree of solemnness to it, right? I don't, I don't think that we should go to God, you know, laying bare all of our guilt, all of our faults with this, like, you know, peppy spirit. That, that might miss out on the gravity of our actions. But what I want us to know is that we don't have to be afraid of confession. God is not a, a fearsome brute who, is to, who has to be restrained when we confess, God is overjoyed and delighted to have us accept our faults because that allows him to grant us forgiveness and work transformation in our lives. The story in Scripture that comes from Jesus that I think exhibits best this nature of God is the the parable of the prodigal son, or some call it the parable of the two lost sons. 
And if you've been in church, you know the story. It can be found in Luke 15. And the younger son tells his father, I wish you were dead. You know, give me my inheritance. Give me what's coming to me and buzz off. And then he goes and he, he blows his fortune, living recklessly in a foreign land. And there he is now in a foreign land. He's broke. He's starving. He's feeding animals in a, that would have made him unclean to his homeland. He, he's like, I wish I could eat the animal slop. That's how, how uh, uh, you know, destitute he is. And while he's there, he hatches a plan that I would say is right out of our playbook. He says, if I can go back to my father and show him how sorry I am, maybe then he'll give me shelter. Maybe then he'll feed me as if I was one of his servants. We regularly operate out of this mindset. We view God as vindictive, and we have to demonstrate just how sorry we are to get back in his good graces. Years ago, I was in college. A friend of mine named Mike and I were having lunch, and we were talking about confession. We were talking about sin. And he had, you know, when he would make a mistake at home, and he'd go to his dad and he'd say, Dad, I'm sorry. His dad's response would be, prove it. That, I think, is the attitude that so many of us carry with God, that when we go to God in confession and we go to apologize for ways that we violated his covenant, we imagine him like Mike did his dad, saying, prove it, that we've got to earn it. That's what the son is doing. I'm going to earn that forgiveness from you, Father. I'm going to work it off. But then what happens? Listen to Luke 15, 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father's response was delight to see his wayward son come home. He sprints after him. He embraces him. You know, what we see as we keep reading the story is the son tries to, to mumble out his apology, but all the father can do is shower him with affection give him signals that he is welcomed back, not as a servant, not to pay his debt, but as a son to the estate. Friends, when we go to God in confession, this is the posture of God that we go to, one who is waiting for the opportunity to shower us with affection when we're willing to wise up to our brokenness and return to him, right? As Foster said, that it's not it's not God who needs to be convinced to forgive, not, forgive us, or to con, but, but that it's us who need to be convinced to go to God in, in, in confession. Now, to have this understanding of confession, I, I do have to say a word about the cross. Right? God's, con, God's confession, or our confession, God's forgiveness is not free. It's not painless. Now, it might be free to us as we receive it, but it cost Jesus his life. Confession only works because of the redemption that culminated on the cross and was confirmed in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. The cross is not about an angry God, but the New Testament tells us that it is the love of God that drove Jesus to the cross. It was his desire to see us back in his family that sent Christ to the cross. God and his commitment to his people provided that avenue to take that guilt that we all carry with us for our wrongdoings, to remove them from us. Without the cross, 
the discipline of confession is just psychologically therapeutic. It might make us feel better about ourselves, you know, get that weight off of our chest, but it does nothing without the cross to, to change our standing with God. Right? Through the cross, our debt has been cleared so we can come to God with open arms to receive us. So up, up until this point, you might be tracking with me, right? You have some sense of what confession is. Maybe you're, you buy into this understanding that, that God lovingly uh, uh, accepts our confession, not out of anger. He's not furious with us. But why does Foster list it as a corporate discipline? Why is this not an inward, individual discipline? You know, 1 Timothy 2.5 says this. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and people, the person Christ Jesus. So there is one mediator. And, and I believe in light of this passage, the Protestant church has rightly rejected the, the need of confession to go to a priest or a pastor. You don't have to confess to, to, you know, through uh, a surrogate. Right? This, this passage teaches, the, teaches us that the only mediator necessary between ourselves and God is Jesus. But considering that, also see James chapter 5, verse 16. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So if we take these two passages in tension, it helps us understand that confession to others is not necessary, but there is still value in the corporate confession, right? Sharing one another's burdens, sharing one another's sins, confessing and receiving that healing. You see, when we confess sins to one another, we begin to see that we aren't alone in our sin. When there's an area of sin, and, and you, you know, I'm sure you, you know what I'm talking about, right? You, you've done something wrong, and there's guilt, there's shame that comes into there. And I think the enemy uses it as an opportunity to isolate us, right? We hear those sinister whispers in the back of our mind, right? You're a failure. All those other people have their lives together, but you don't. Right? Hold that secret close to your heart, because if you ever shared it, they would surely reject you, and then you would be all alone. Those are the things that we hear from the enemy, words of condemnation. It's this fear of failure and rejection which leads us to hide from others. And so we put up a facade. We pretend like everything is okay on the outside. But inside, we might feel alone. or We might feel powerless to, to handle our sins, especially if there's a habitual sin, an addiction that we just can't seem to kick the habit of. This fits really well with what we've been reading, just another plug for our small group book. Right? Pete Scazzaro describes that one of the elements of unhealthy, unhealthy emotional spirituality is what he calls the false self, where our outside behaviors, kind of this, that facade, that image that we put off doesn't match what's going on inside. And we might seek to appear to be more religious or moral in public. You know, you come to church and, you know, act like, Man, I'm, I'm all about that Bible, and you, you go home, and it's, you know, you got half an inch of dust on it, just as an example. We keep those things in private. But the practice of corporate confession reminds us that we aren't alone, right? We see that we're all hot messes, if we're being honest with ourselves. Augustine, one of the, the great fathers of the Christian faith, described that at the same time, we are both saint and sinner. I know our, our friend, uh, Mike Drabick, likes to say that we are saints 
who sin. Right? We've been declared righteous by God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, but we continue to wrestle with sins and shortcomings. And when we acknowledge that, we can know that none of us are perfect, that we're all in this together. Sorry, I just had high school musical start going through my head there, ADHD. We're all in this together. We all have sins. We all have blind places. We all have, have spots where we have acted foolishly or it, in downright evil ways. But when we confess to our brothers and sisters in the Lord, we break through these walls that we erect to keep others out. We're able to feel acceptance in the family of God. You can always just pray to God, right? As, as that First Peter chapter 2 said, there's one mediator. Through Jesus, we experience forgiveness, and that confession can go just through him. But there's something special and powerful in audibly hearing a friend speak words of forgiveness over you. So confession is a corporate discipline, as argued by Foster. So let's turn our attention to what should confession look like? What are the ingredients, if you will, of confession? St. Alphonsus Liguori, he was an 18th century Catholic theologian, and he said that there are three things necessary for confession. And I, I, his, his three things are pretty good. I um, alter them just a little bit. But the first is what he calls examination of conscience. And he says that this is when our souls come under the gaze of God. When we find ourselves in the presence of God, we recognize that there is a gap that exists. This is Isaiah 6. Isaiah in the throne room of God, he sees God in his glory, and what does he say? Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He acknowledges that, God, when I see you in your fullness, there's there's a disconnect here. I'm not living up to the way that you are. So that's kind of what this is. God shows us where in our lives we need his forgiveness a term that we might be more familiar with is what we would call conviction. It's a thorough consideration of the places where we've fallen short of God's perfect standard. And and, an important point here is we go to confession, right? When we acknowledge these areas, it's important that we take responsibility for our actions. This isn't a time for excuse-making, we don't blame it on others. It's not, you know, it's not the fault of our family member or our upbringing, our neighbor. You know, we don't say, oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm hangry right now. Like, that's why I'm lashing out at you. Or, you know, I didn't get enough sleep last night because we, we lost an hour of daylight savings time. So as if that's an excuse for you to behave this way. Confession is not, you know, justifying our behaviors. It's saying, nope, that was me. I did that. We accept the blame. And as you consider these sins, I think it's important to make sure they're definite, concrete sins. It's not helpful to say, you know, God, I confess that I haven't loved others as myself. We could probably say that every day, and it's a true statement. But I think it's much more effective or helpful to say, you know, God, I confess that it was inappropriate for me to lose my temper and lash out at, you know, Peggy working at the deli who messed up my order. Right? Be specific in labeling where those behaviors and actions were. As you notice, a lot of my things have to do with anger. There's probably something Freudian in that for me. If you're having trouble of thinking of areas, if you're like, God, I just can't think of anywhere that I've sinned. Here, here's what I would suggest doing. Hey, you, you might, we can be very naive of, of our own shortcomings. Go through those Ten Commandments. You know, 
Have I, have I uh, you know, loved the Lord with, with everything I've got? Have I honored the Sabbath? What does it mean to honor Sabbath? That's a whole sermon for another time. Have I bore false witness? And have I taken the Lord's name in vain? Taking the Lord's name in vain is not necessarily using God's name as a cuss word. I mean, probably shouldn't do that either, but I think taking the Lord's name in vain is when we, you know, the Lord told me to do this. Did the Lord tell you to do that or do you just want to do that, right? That, that's, I think, a better example of what it means to not take the Lord's name in vain. You know, we, we studied about a year ago the seven deadly sins, right? They're deadly not because they are these things that are going to, like, be grand displays of, of sin, but because they're insidious in our hearts. So, you know, go on Wikipedia, look up what the seven deadly sins are and see if you've, you've follow, you know, fallen into one of them. Probably have. All right, so that's the first, examination of our conscience, conviction. The second ingredient to good confession is sorrow over our sins. Right? Sorrow, like love, is not always an emotion. Sorrow, I would say, is kind of like disgust over the sin that we've committed. It's like looking back and kind of being like, ugh, having that visceral response of revulsion. You know, if you have no sorrow, if there's no kind of recognition that, you know, you might, right, because there's a difference between cognitively understanding I did something wrong and, you know, feeling in your heart and realizing like, man, that was, that was messed up. And so if there's no sorrow, then I would say we're only confessing by going through the motions, just because we know that it's wrong, not because we recognize the depth of it. This experience is what Paul call, calls godly grief. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Right? This godly grief. And this is probably the point in, in the, the message that's most appropriate to talk about penance. Again, if you were raised Catholic, uh, pe penance is probably uh, more familiar, something you're more familiar with. Uh, it, it's probably viewed as a way to show God just how sorry we are. That's often what penance have, has been. You know, for, for instance, Catholics, you know, you would go to a priest to confess your sins, and you know, the, the, the priest might tell you to say a certain number of our fathers or Hail Marys. Um, it, again, it's, it's kind of homework to, to display the level of uh, my sorrow. Uh, but the Catholics aren't the only ones with, with this habit. I think we all do this. We all find ways to kind of prove to God how sorry we are. When I was in college, I, I had an accountability partner named Paul, and Paul and I would confess our sins to one another, and there was a particular sin that uh, each of us had a difficulty in breaking the habit. And, and so what we did shared the story before, some of you may have heard it, uh, is one night we got up at 2 a.m. and we met on one side of, of Penn State's campus and we found these like boulders, uh, like they were boulders to me, 25, 35 pounds. They were, pr they were pretty heavy for someone with my frame. Uh, and, and we lugged these rocks together across, we each had one, we walked together across Penn State's campus, the like mile it was. It was like horrific. I hated every moment of it. And, you know, the thought was it was a demonstration of how sorry I am. It was a way to say, like, I don't want to, you know, we don't, we don't want to commit this sin again so we don't have to do this again kind of stuff. Um, that's, I think, an example of what historically penance could be. But the problem is in both of those examples, my, you know, whether it be Our Fathers and Hail Marys or lugging a, a, a rock across campus, uh, penance is often viewed as a way to try to earn God's forgiveness. 
but there's nothing that we can do to add to the forgiveness that's already been wrought by Jesus Christ on the cross. Like, that's done. The debt has been paid. Richard Foster said this of penance. He said, but if it is seen as an opportunity to pause a moment and consider the seriousness of our sin, then it has genuine merit. If, if you want to utilize penance as part of your confession, as long as it's not to work off the sin or to show God how sorry you are, but it's an opportunity to pause. It's an opportunity to take in that gravity, to feel the sorrow of our f- offense. Then I think it's, it's something that's worthwhile. To have gar- godly sorrow, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, that we've sinned against him. All right, the last component from St. Alphonsus. Oh, it did, did get up. Okay. Uh, is a determination to avoid sin. This is what I would call repentance. The Hebrew word for repentance evokes this image, right? Repentance is kind of like you're walking down a path. Repentance is you stop, you turn 180 degrees, and you start walking the other direction. It's the Hebrew word shuv. And, and, you know, the unfortunate problem with that, of, of what I just demonstrated, is that it makes it seem like I'm under control uh, it's under my control to, to do it, to break from that bondage of sin. And, you know, again, this is speaking out of experience. I don't know if you've experienced the same type of thing, but, you know, we might be able to force ourselves to change our habits for a period of time. In fact, I was just talking to my mom uh, y- yesterday um, on, the, uh, on the phone, and we were, she was chatting about how her church is doing a series through kind of habits, like good habits of faith. And I, I said to her, it's like, you know, I... I prefer the language of discipline better because discipline is something that we have control over. You could argue you have control over your habits, but a lot of these habits are so deeply ingrained that we're not going to be able to change ourselves. You can try really hard to polish up your outward behaviors, but in the end, what's true of our hearts is going to come out in the end. There's going to be a day where we're short on sleep or we're out of focus, and that outward refined self that we project is going to crumble. In repentance, I am not capable of changing myself. Repentance, there is a willful element to that. But repentance is a time that I invite God to come in and do the demolition and renovation work that is necessary in my heart. Right? We ask God to, to cultivate in us a desire to live holy lives, to flee from unholy living. Right? We have to pray that our wills are going to be delivered from sin. You know, you might try really hard. If there's an a, addiction that you have, you say, God, I, 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 uh, I'm not going to do this anymore. And maybe you'll be successful in that for a period of time. But then you find yourself, you've done it again. And you're in the same place, and you've got that same guilt and that same shame. And repentance is saying, God, I can't stop doing this. I need you to change my heart so I don't want to do it anymore. That's what, that's, that's what it is praying that our wills to be delivered, and piece by piece. And unfortunately, it's slower than we would like. Right? God's timing is not always in the same time that we have. But little by little, God will follow through on our request, and he will heal us. He'll make us more holy. Right? This is the process that we call sanctification in the church. Mold us more and more into that image of his son, Jesus Christ. Those are the ingredients for confession, right? that we would take a, a look acknowledge what it is that we've done, Feels, experience sorrow for our sin, 
and repent of those things, determination to avoid it in the future. So having looked at those, I want to close with two pieces of application. One is an example of how you can do this, a very tangible way to think about confession, especially if confession is not something that you are regularly doing. And the second is a brief synopsis of what to do if the roles are reversed and you are now the one receiving confession from someone else. So one way that you can can organize and understand your sin for confession, Richard Foster calls it this, the confession journal. Basically what you do is you take your life and you divide it into three segments, three periods. Childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. Now if you're still in one of those phases, you know, if you're still an adolescent, just break it into smaller chunks than theirs. But the idea was kind of break it into these, these different epochs. And what you do is for the next three days, you sit for 10 to 15 minutes. Limit your time. This doesn't need to go on for hours and hours. 10 to 15 minutes on one of those time periods, like childhood. And then the next day, sit for 10 to 15 minutes on adolescence. And then the last day, the same with adulthood. And during that time, what you're doing is you got your piece of paper with your triads, and you're just jotting down anything that God might be bringing to mind. Any sin, unconfessed sin, or sin that you're kind of still feeling guilt over in those times. Right, this is kind of like brainstorming, right? If you're in, in like a, uh, uh, a strategic thinking seminar, and they tell you to brainstorm, right? One of the key elements of brainstorming is, you know, if you're brainstorming in a group, is we don't shut down each other's brainstorms, right? We're not analyzing. You're not analyzing your sin at this time. You're just trusting that God is revealing to you bringing to mind the things that you, you know, need to to hand over to him for you to process later. So that's kind of getting all of that, your confession journal together. Once you finish that, you sit down with a trusted friend and share your list. Might be the kind of thing, if you have trouble sharing verbatim, you know, maybe, maybe read your notes right there so that you can make sure you're, you know, dotting every I and crossing every T and not avoiding some of those, those things. And you might ask, like, who should I confess to? Someone you trust. I think that's probably good that you have a a level of relationship to them. I don't know if the, the, you know, average person on the street is going to be like, okay, this is a little bit too much. I don't know that I needed to know all this. But someone that, you you know, has spiritual maturity, someone who has wisdom, compassion, I think is real important. And here, I wouldn't say this is the most important piece, but this is my favorite piece of this, is after you finish sharing, you take that piece of paper of your list and you tear it to shreds, burn it, whatever, something that utterly destroys it. And it it might seem silly, but it's a tangible expression of the forgiveness that you've received. We do this all the time, right? That's what baptism is. This is what communion is, right? They're tangible expressions of something spiritually that is going on to remind us of that. Just as the words on that page that have described your sin have been decimated, so too have you received absolution for your sins. One of the best pictures in Scripture of this freedom that we see comes from Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I mentioned Bruce Bickle last week making iced tea, and I want to use another one of his timeless illustrations. So Bruce used to be a pilot for the Navy. In fact, uh, Bruce Bickle, I don't, I don't know if any of you, some, some people who run in Christian circles in Pittsburgh for a while may have known him. I think he passed away a few years ago. He was like a vice president for PNC Bank. But the, the dude was like kind of like a real-life Forrest Gump. So he was trained in flight school by John McCain, 
And while at the Naval Academy, he was the backup quarterback uh, on the football team to Roger Staubach. So it's just like he kind of was just off to the side, all those like these, these famous situations. He was shot down in, in Vietnam, and he was like 30 seconds away from being a prisoner of war. Crazy stuff. Anyway, once he said he was flying in his jet, and this verse exploded with meaning to him. Right? God said that your sins, your transgressions are separated as far as the east is from the west, not north and south. And Bruce Bickle believed that that was intentional because if you, you know, let's just say you can fly and you, you pull out of the airport, fly due west from Pittsburgh, you will always be heading west. You will never reach the east. You could circle the globe. You could hit Pittsburgh again. You're still heading west. But if you fly due north from here, there will be a time when that compass flips across the North Pole and you'll, you'll start heading south. There's no way for us to measure the distance between the east and the west because you could go on traveling forever in one direction without ever reaching the end. I, I think that's, I, I remember him saying that. And I just think it's a beautiful picture of this, this, this image of God's forgiveness, of how far he's, it's infinite, separated us in his grace. Now, when, when we confess our sins to one another, it, it, you may not have this cathartic experience. Maybe you do. Maybe it's like there's something you've been holding on to for a real long time that you've never told another soul, and you just feel that weight like physically lift off your shoulders. Maybe that's what you experience, but you might not. Right? It, it, it might not be religious, uh, uh, revolutionary. It might not be this big epiphany, but that's okay. The, the exercise is designed to help us to be free from this baggage of sin. You know, if things are coming up as you're journaling, it means that they're, they're still, you're still not experiencing that true forgiveness. It's working, even if you don't sense any noticeable change. But I think beyond just that, when you are vulnerable and confess to someone else, it empowers them to know that this is a safe space, that they can reciprocate, they can confess to you as well. Now, what if you're trying to confess something? Again, you've got this secret that you've been buried deep down, and you just are having trouble saying it. Right? Whatever the sin is, you just cannot bring yourself to share. Just again, this, is, this one's for free. You, know, you can give the recipient of your confession uh, permission to ask yes or no questions. Maybe you, don't ha maybe you can't say it. You know, think about it kind of like playing you know, 20 questions confession. 20 questions of confession. You know, by answering those yes and no questions, the person can probe, can kind of dig out, unearth whatever it is that you've been trying to keep buried. And the goal is not that you can feel more guilt and shame, but that you can receive healing. Feel that forgiveness. Feel that absolution for it. So let's cl I'm going to close by transitioning to the other side of the conversation. Let's say you have a friend that wants to confide in you, wants to confess to you. What do you do? There's no formula, but a few things that facets that would be helpful is first to be a listening ear. You know, don't, don't talk unless they seem to need your help teasing something out or having trouble communicating. Maybe ask, you can ask clarifying questions, but the goal is not for you to, you know, you're not counseling them. You don't need to give a response to their sin. I hope this goes without saying, but this is not a time to be judgmental. Right? The person is confiding in us, and they're sharing significant vulnerability and trust to make any kind of snide remark about their sin, like, I can't believe you did that. 
it's, it's only going to close them off from, from sharing in the future. Not to, not to mention, we've all got our own grave offenses against God. Some of, us, some of us probably have stuff buried that we don't want to share with others, but we do well to remember that. You know, we need to help people feel comfortable that there's not anything that they could say that would disturb us. I had this all the time with college students. They'd be like, you don't know what I've done. Try me. Like, give it a try. And, and let me tell you, like, m- many people hold really, really deep guilt and shame. And sometimes it's for something that I I've personally think they've kind of overblown their, their guilt and shame. Like, it's not what you did wasn't that bad. Sometimes there's some pretty significant stuff. I mean, many years ago, I had someone confess something to me that they had not told another soul, and it, and it alluded to the abuse of a child many years before. And I told the individual in that moment, I said, I, I've got it. Like, I'm a mandated reporter. I've got to call the children's abuse hotline and report this. But I told that individual, I said, I'm going to walk with you. Whatever legal consequences follow this, we, we can go through this together. And I've got to say, I know that was a really painful time for that individual, but they experienced a freedom of, and forgiveness, not only from God, but was able to work on reconciliation for the victim as well uh, in that. Again, I, I, I didn't facilitate that. That's above anything that I am. But, you know, the, the experts were able to, to have some mediation and have some opportunity to, to lay that out. And I know that that, I mean, I, I have heard them say how influential that was right? Because it's something that they held on to for fear. And I don't blame them, right? No one wants to be like, oh, if I confess this, I might go to jail. They didn't have to go to jail. Um, No one wants to to have that. So can you imagine keeping that buried and locked inside? But he was able to experience freedom in that. You know, if people are confessing to you, remember, you're not the Holy Spirit. Your goal is not to change them. You are a conduit for the Holy Spirit's work. You know, pray for discernment during that time. Pray that the Lord would, would provide you what you should say, when to say it, or maybe when to be quiet. Lastly, when they've shared, pronounce words of forgiveness upon them. Pray for them audibly. Again, like I said, this isn't a time just to counsel them. Don't tell them what to do with their sin. Tell them they're forgiven. Pray and invite God's healing work of forgiveness to permeate their lives. If you're comfortable, and if they're comfortable, you could probably ask for a mission first, but ask to lay a hand on them. You know, place it on their shoulder, or their head, or their back. Many examples of the Bible encouraging us to closeness through physical contact as a conduit for our prayers. As followers of Jesus, we know that we have sinned greatly, but I hope we know that we've also been forgiven by a great Savior. Confession is a corporate discipline that allows those sins to be drawn to the surface so that they can be addressed, they can be dealt with by God. May we be a people who are willing to be vulnerable with others, that our culture here would be one that is focused on grace, that it's a safe space to share these things, free of judgment, so that we can experience forgiveness and healing. We can provide that safe haven not only for ourselves, but others as well. So I've got some reflection questions, as I always do. I actually have four this week. I couldn't figure out, I couldn't narrow it down. I didn't want to narrow it down. I probably could have. I didn't want to. So as we think, and I'll post these on Facebook and the website, um, but the first is this, going back to how we opened. How do you imagine God viewing you in confession? Is he angry? Is he impatient? Is he compassionate? 
What does the Bible say of his mercy? I think that's one of the big hurdles we need to overcome in confession is recognizing God's, right, that father from the Luke 15 is, is the kind of the disposition, the posture that God comes to us in. Second is this, would you feel comfortable confessing your sins to a trusted friend? Why or why not? This is hard. This is, you know, you, you need to be vulnerable in this. And so kind of thinking through it, I think it can be really helpful uh, to confess to someone else, but uh, what might be some barriers, if there are barriers, and kind of analyze them. Next is this, read Psalm 103, 8 to 14, which is the broader context of that east and west. Uh, and so as you confess, you know, maybe if you were going to go just to God in confession, read that passage, meditate on it, visualize that kind of infinite distance from you on one side and just going west, you know, go west, young man, forever uh, our sins go from us. And then lastly, find some time to put together a confession journal and allow God to reveal sins from your past that might be hindering you in the present. You know, it's one of those things that we often don't stop movement enough to allow like God to catch up to us. Um, John Mark Comer describes it as uh, uh, we, we need to rest so that our souls can catch up to where we've been. And um, I think confession is one of these places where we, we err all the time. But if we're just kind of constantly moving, constantly moving, we don't allow ourselves time to process what those are. Uh, just taking 10 to 15 minutes in a day can help us reflect on, man, where are the places that I've messed up so that I can either go to someone or ask God for forgiveness. Um, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll close with the, uh, the final song. God, as we talk about this language and discipline of confession, there might be some of us in this room or who are listening right now who some very heavy things come to mind, things that have been buried, things that there is a lot of shame and guilt over, God, I pray that you would allow us to put ourselves in positions that we can bring those things to the surface. It it might feel like putting salt in a wound and we don't want to reopen all of those things, but God, it's through treating it, 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 sin that just kind of sits there, festers. Lord, we, we want to take that wound and flush it out so that it can heal well in your glory and grace. And so, God, may we be a people who, as you bring sins to mind, that we can be free with our confession to you, that we can have people in our lives that we can freely confess these things to. God, so that we can be freed, so that we can not put up false selves, but that we can be holistic, that we can be uh, uh, filled with integrity, wholeness experiencing your truth and, and a, a desire to run the opposite direction from the sins that we commit regularly. God, may you continue to bring healing in our lives out of your love and compassion and mercy. We pray this in your son's precious name of Christ. Amen.